0: Okay. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) (laughs) Oh, I leaned right into the microphone. I tried to get it away by taking off my headphones. There you go. Okay.
1: Wow. Okay.
2: (laughs) Shut up. Okay. Wow. Keep that in, that shut up. It's
1: going to be one of them mornings. This is where the party ends. I can stand here listening to you and your racist friend. I know politics for you, but I feel
3: like a hypocrite talking to you and your racist
0: friend. Welcome to My Racist Friend, a podcast about the messy parts of relationships that help us grow together. I'm Amy McKees, and today, well, okay, you go, Don.
1: Oh, my gosh. Will you That's
0: inhale I, I want to let so you talk. Important. I'm Amy McKees, and I'm here
1: with... Don Griffin.
0: And today, we have special guests, Amy Banks and Isaac Napper, authors of Fighting Time, which is going to be released in November. Is that? Incredible? But available in pre-sales now. Available in pre-sales now, and Don and I have already had had at it and have enjoyed it a lot. Great to see
2: you <laughs> again. You
0: <as> well? <laughs> yeah,
1: I nice I I feel like I, reading I- the stories about you. Uh, I feel like I know you. So awesome. Uh,
3: thank you. It's, it's, it's uh, a pleasure to meet you.
0: I don't know. Maybe one of you could just tell us how you met. Oh, that would be the whole book. Uh, so Not right.
3: <laughs> do you want to start, Isaac? You want me to start? We met through Lori, Lori White. She's the chief judge out here in New Orleans, Louisiana. And at the time, she was my attorney that played a major role in my release from prison and to prove my innocence. Amy got in touch with Lori once you found out that my case was exonerated. And Lori called me and she said, I got a call from Dr. Amy Banks and her sister. Nancy and they would like to meet you. And the, the, the last name sounded familiar. I didn't know who it was because I, I think my stepfather name was Banks. Oh, and, you never told me that. Okay. Yeah. And, and so and then uh Lori went on to tell me that the case that, that we won proved the innocence, that was the guy, Mr. Arnold Banks, and his two daughters. And I said, Wow, I was excited. I wanted to meet Amy, but I wanted to meet the younger sister, because I thought of her so much in prison and being eight years old at the time she lost her father. It was like an opportunity, you know,
2: actually, Isaac, I reached out over the summer. I think it was as you were in you were transitioning out of federal prison and I I um you know, the stuff with my father's murder was always churning. And then when we found out, we didn't find out till 2005, Isaac had been released in 1992, but nobody had told our family that he had been exonerated. So we were, you know, and that the case, you know, my father's murder case was now unsolved. Nobody told us that either, but, you know, it always had been kind of just doing in me, like, you know, as this big mess, you know, that felt so horrible, you know, when finding out that Isaac, well, it was a huge surprise that this had happened in the, the case that, you know, we we had been convinced they had the right guy. So that was a huge su- surprise. It wasn't a surprise societally, right, in terms of what, what I certainly knew at that point could happen, particularly to people of color in the legal system. But It just was like this pit in my chest that I had had to figure out. And, you know, and so I finally just literally cold wrote Lori White on you know, in the middle of a summer evening when I was away on vacation, not not really expecting to hear back. It was just like, what am I going to do? And she wrote right back to me. So she and I. Uh, went back and forth. And then, you know, and she was telling me, Isaac, about, you know, kind of what you've been doing. And, you know, I literally said to her, "You are you really pretty clear, you know, that Isaac didn't do it? And she, you know, she she was so direct and so lovely. And I said, geez, I actually have always wanted to meet Isaac. I don't know why, but I always have. And so then she re- re- reached out to you and I and Nancy and I came. So it started the process in the summer And then we finally arranged it all, I think, in in December of 2015. And, you know, with it, Nancy and I, you know, decided, okay, we're going to do this. And Isaac agreed and, you know, jumped on a plane and went to New Orleans.
1: Can you explain, you know, there might be not necessarily clear evidence, but not 100 percent concrete evidence that the person that they have have claimed is, you know, is guilty the families tend to they lock in on that that one person when there could clearly be other people that where the case really isn't as strong. Does does that make sense? Can you?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, Isaac, you certainly can talk to this. What I can answer it from my side. Right. Which was, you know, my understanding of it. And this is kind of in retrospect, kind of looking through everything. First of all, what's really important is they had no evidence. This wasn't That they didn't, that they had a little evidence, they had no evidence against Isaac. They had an eyewitness, I guess it was Tony Williams, right, who had some mental challenges, who was somebody in the neighborhood who thought he saw. Isaac, but then he never even testified at the trial. They didn't consider him a, you know, I think basically a strong enough witness to be able to testify, you know, and so for the longest time, like the first month, I think there was like a month before they they had to get somebody to bring before the grand jury. It's no surprise that, you know, this family in Maine, this very, you know, white family in very white Maine who wasn't used to the kind of urban violence or what have you, they told us We have the guy. We're sure we have the guy. We've been trying to get this guy for a long time. The amount of stuff that they shared with us with such confidence. You know, we're like, wow,
3: this is great. So that's my side of the story. Uh, Like you said, Tony Williams was incompetent. He would walk the streets all hours of the night. And and, you know, Tony Williams identified, I think, 12 people uh, as the murder, as the guy he seen. And we never knew that until Burl Carter was another good friend of mine. Who was incarcerated, serving 198 years. He was like an inmate counselor, inmate lawyer, and he would help everybody that he could. When he looked in my case, I had practically given up. At the time when it happened, I thought I would be free whenever trial come around. Say, said, well, they'll find out the truth, and I'll be set free. When they came with the verdict and said guilty, it was like I was my mind dead. Couldn't believe it. And then I started thinking about all these guys that had been talking to me in prison, telling me things like, they're going to find me guilty. One guy, he told me, he said, I believe you, Innocent, because I would tell all of them. man, I don't belong in here. And I didn't do anything. And a few of them would say, oh, everybody say that. They said, man, you still may be found guilty. Said, How could they find me guilty if I'm innocent? He said because the way the system is set up, they want to get somebody and they want to clean the records up. And I didn't know what any of that meant. And when they found me guilty, all that came back to me and it made me believe that they did this here to me for whatever reason. I don't know if it was because of my race, because at that time, I didn't understand about people being racist and stuff like that. I I, I didn't understand that at all. So the guys would put that in my head and they would, tell, they would tell me these things. And when it happened, just the way most of them said it would, I started thinking, wow, they was right. They know what they're talking about. And I just give up on the system. And, and especially when I filed, my lawyer filed an appeal and they denied the appeal. They denied everything that was filed. I said, wow, I'm not going to be free. I started blaming the creator for a while. I was stubborn. I went for the church and said, why would I go to church you know, and praise a God that have me sitting in here right now for a crime I didn't commit? So I was angry with the creator you know, and I was angry with everybody. And I, I think that played a part in my, my reactions toward the system and constantly getting in trouble in prison. I was staying in the hole a lot because I felt I'm in here for a crime I didn't commit serving a life sentence. I'm in here to die. Like I said, a a bunch of people in prison, they believe me. And I even met a good friend, Michael Johnson. Well, I knew Michael uh, on the streets. We didn't hang together anything. The age difference was a play to fact. I think Michael is about maybe four years older than me. But he was innocent on his case as well. The the murder case that Michael was arrested for, he had another guy came to prison like about maybe eight or nine years after Michael. And he told Michael, said, the crime that you committed, he said, man, I'm going to tell you, I did that. He told Michael everything he took from the cab driver and how he killed the cab driver and everything. And he told Michael, said, bro, I'm here. But he was down on another crime and he was serving uh, uh, 99 years. So he told Michael, he said, I got 99 years. I'll never go home. If I can sign an affidavit or whatever to help you get out of here, I would. So and that's what he did. The lawyer put it in court. The guy signed the affidavits. And the Fifth Circuit of a period, they denied Michael. They said, that's one inmate. No, he'll never be free. And he's trying to help another one go home. Is Mike
1: still in prison or is he out
3: there? He out, he did, 42 years. Jesus, man. (sighs) He made parole, but he's on a life sentence parole. So his case is still open in case if he would get a traffic ticket, they can give him that life sentence back and send him back to prison.
1: Damn, that's a a form of slavery right there. Oh, yeah. He's got a noose. He's got a virtual noose on his neck all the time, at all times. He can't even get mad. He can't even get mad at someone. He can't even defend himself.
3: Yeah, he can't. Yeah, it is sad. And something that he has to live with, I mean, for the rest of the life that he has left, it's like he's still in prison. He's still in prison. He, He had one feet inside the prison and the other feet inside the graveyard. (laughs)
2: <laughs> we went to Angola together. M- Michael came to lunch, right?
3: Uh, yeah.
2: th- there was a lunch that was planned for us. And, you know, I remember Isaac gets up and, you know, goes and gives us this, this old old guy a hug and, you know, white shirt. And clearly he was one of Isaac's friends. But I remember sitting, you, you the two of you were sitting across from me. Yeah. My God, Michael looked so sad. Number one, he was happy, really happy to see you. But I remember him saying at one point, I remember this, Isaac, but these things stick out with me. Right. This because this wasn't a part of my everyday experience or life. I, I mean, I you know, I've no I know since then that it ha- has been for you and all of your friends. Right. But what Michael said was, you know, there's not much to leave here for because everybody in my life has died while I've been in here. I, I mean, it was like such a visceral gut check. Yeah. You know how you ever even hold on to some sense of meaning or purpose or hope or, you know, what does that even mean when you're trapped like that? You Ugh. know,
3: he lost everybody. He lost his father, he lost his mother, he lost his sister, he lost his brother, he lost, you know, everybody uh, doing his incarceration. And he well, he still have his daughter and his son. Oh, OK.
1: Is there an age difference? Are y'all are y'all close in age? Same age. So when you were going through what you were going through at seventeen, she was going. through
3: <laughs> We was both sixteen years old.
2: Yeah, both sixteen years old, and this happened, and you know,
1: in in different ways. But you you both lost the the remainder of your childhood. First of all, yeah, you lost a father. You lost life. I mean, like like the the the, the freedom to be free. I mean, you kind of amazing though that you you came together at the right time. Maybe you know.
3: I, and when I see Amy, it gives me chills. It lights me up. I feel so good just to hear her voice. <laughs>
2: I feel likewise, you know. And I and I, you know, there was something about the, you know, being the same age. You know, I, I I could put myself in Isaac's shoes and try to imagine. And you know, I knew the way my life blew up. Right, of course. At the time, I was like, what what was going on in his life that would cause me at the time it was that would cause this young guy to do this. So I created a story and it, one of the things that feels so important, I mean, as we're talking about relationships and what is lost, I mean, obviously you are separated from your relationships, but as I've come to know Isaac, you know, to know the depth of the loss, like even these images, the, in the court transcripts, the trials, the, you know, everything I've heard about your family, Isaac, right? You guys were close and you supported each other. And, you know, your mother is a heroine. And, um, you know, she is literally my hero. And you lost your boxing career and all of that. But you all of this time with your family, right? I mean, with your friends, with your loved ones that were close. I mean, when I sit there and try to picture you in that, Isaac, it makes me crazy. Like, I can't imagine. Like, what would we do? What would I do? in that position. Do you know what I mean? And so for me, yes, my, my life was, you know, uh, weighted with with grief and trauma and all of that. But Isaac and I were, were on, you know, in some ways a similar trajectory, you know, as emb- embarrassing for me as it sounds. I mean, I think Isaac had, a, you know, a, l- a legitimate shot at being like world champion boxer. For uh-huh. me, I was an athlete and, you know, I still got to go to Division One college and play basketball. While you're in prison, even though, our lives had both blown up. I got to, you know, go to college, play basketball, go to medical school, become a resident. That's what I was doing, you know, becoming a doctor the entire time that Isaac was locked away in Angola. And neither one of us had done anything wrong.
3: Right. That's right. When the guys came to me and told me that boxing was huge in Angola. In the beginning, I didn't want a box even though that was the last thing that I was involved in before I was arrested. But I was angry and I I didn't want to box. But I learned that maybe if I would go to the gym and I would start training, that would help kind of relieve some of this tension and it would help me to escape reality. That's exactly what it did. And And I think that played a big role in me being the type of fighter That I became in prison. You know, I held the boxing title in prison for a very long time. I won like 90 boxing matches before I lost one. Hmm. I would be in the gym all day, just hitting on the bag, training, working out. And guys just said, Man, you work out so hard, you just don't never stop. Do you get tired? (laughs) You know, that played a big role psychologically. You know, it, it helped me to release a lot of tension and a lot of pain inside. I had some tough situations when I lost my brother while I was in prison. Mm. Uh, and then I lost my close nephew. And then I lost a sister. And, and, and that, that's one of the scary moments. You never knew when you're gonna lose somebody that's real close to you. And I was afraid that I would lose my mother, mm. not be able to attend the funeral. Because everybody that I lost I couldn't attend the funeral they wouldn't allow me to attend the funeral And when I lost my father in prison it didn't even matter to go to even ask could I attend my father's funeral it's like talking to a wall Hmm. but when Michael Johnson lost his mother they didn't even come to the cell and say "Uh, Michael we sorry Uh, they just got the call and when the phone call came they came to Michael's cell and said mother just passed and they just walked off
2: and that's routine right i mean that's routine that's happening every day to some guy in there right
3: yeah
0: i can see how boxing was how important it was to have a place to put that rage yeah because the chapters that you wrote about angola I kept thinking of the movie Cool Hand Luke where he's in a Southern jail somewhere and he has to dig a hole because the warden says, your dirt is in my hole. Mm -hmm. And so he has to dig the hole and make a pile. And then the warden comes out and says, why'd you make this big mess? This belongs in there. And like, he just keeps moving the piles of dirt back and forth. It's just designed to break him. And the things like the amount of time that you know, going, was it 90 days without a right up in the field before you could...
3: Before you can get a job on a compound.
2: Yeah. hmm Like that kind of stuff. It's designed to dehumanize. Kind of, Isaac, what you said about how, you know, when you hear my voice, it, li- it lights you up. I feel exactly the same way. And one of the things that's amazing to me is that, you know, the narrative that's out there about prisoners, about convicts, about ex-convicts, and then to, you know, to meet somebody who is so open-hearted, so warm and kind and thoughtful and, you know, kind of the antithesis of what we hear about convicts and people going to prison and all of this. And then, you know, my experience, Isaac, of then meeting these other folks, right, in this uh, formerly incarcerated prison group, and you just hear so much of the same stuff, right? And, you know kind of this idea that anybody that breaks the law right you got to punish them you got to demean them you have to put them in their place somehow you know dehumanize them actually my first
0: field placement was in orleans parish prison ah! yeah there were four of us and that's including like the intern i don't i feel like at the time they told us it was like seven thousand inmates like it was a would have been in 93 it was because of a lawsuit that the ACLU had filed. And so the sheriff had to let therapists in, but like we weren't allowed, like there was a long list of things we weren't allowed to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, We weren't allowed to help plan for what to do once they left. Yeah, that was prohibited. Like, We were only allowed to do specific types of groups like that the sheriff thought would be useful. And then as soon as the AC, as the lawsuit ran out, he kicked us out like the moment that it did.
2: Yeah. Isaac, what, the Orleans Parish prison. That wasn't that wasn't where you went first, was it or was it did that by the courthouse? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's the same one. That's yeah. That's, that, that's where you went before you went to Angola. Yeah. yeah. And it was right where Nancy and I met you, you, you and Lori, right there. Exactly. The yeah. Right? When did she become a judge? Do you remember? She became
3: a judge in thousand two Two thousand. Okay. So she visited me in ninety-nine when she come visit me to tell me that she was gonna run for judge. I said, Lord, why would you want to be a judge?
2: <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. What'd you uh, say?
3: <laughs> she said, because I don't want what happened to you to yeah. happen to anybody else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She's been the best judge ever since. Even guys that's gone to court, committed a crime. They will prefer being in her section because they feel comfortable that they will get a fair Yeah, She has a name for that.
2: Yeah. You know, in the book, what she had written to me was that working and getting you free and seeing what can happen really changed the course of her career. Right. That's right. Getting it that this happens and trying to prevent it. What is the name of the program, Isaac, that she started at? She and that other guy
3: started at yeah. Angola. Judge uh, Arthur Hunter. Yes. Yeah, they started the uh, reentry program inside of Angola State Penitentiary. It's a nice program. It's something never been done until she came up with the idea. And these guys now they get they get a chance to come home early if they take her class. If they have ten years, I think the class last lasts about six months. Mm-hmm. That takes about two years off their sentence. They can take all kind of trades
2: that that was part of the program, right, is that they could learn like HVAC and auto mechanic. And I mean, like in, in that they came out with a trade. They had the was it the tr- the trustees or the guys that were in there for life would teach right. these guys, right?
3: Yeah, that would teach them. That's right. Yeah. So they didn't have none of that. When I was there, it was just a bloody prison. Just a lot of violence and nothing constructive.
2: Yeah. I mean, just literally trying to to stay alive every day.
3: Everybody was just trying to survive. Somebody may get killed three o'clock in the morning. You know, mm. like Archer said on that uh that American got talent. Yeah. It was a nightmare.
2: The was a nightmare. Mm. Mm. Just
0: surviving is something of a like well, a that's, that's huge it. supernatural feat like that.
3: Yeah. yeah. One guy, we call him Iron Mike, and I might kill four people in one night. Jesus. Oh Seriously? Kill four in, in a in a unit. He went to each one of them and stabbed them up. And one of them was a good friend of mine. His name was Lester Allen. And mm. we grew up together in the project. He was real low key, very humble. And he slept in the wrong bed that mm. night <sighs> because there was in an open dormitory. I Mike, he knew the four guys that he was going to kill. He knew where each one of them sleep. And Lester happened to sleep in one of those guys bed and let him sleep in his bed that night. And that's how he lost his life.
2: Yeah. I mean, Jesus, you talk about the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Yeah. Ugh. So one of Isaac's friends, Tatum, right? Thad Tatum, who had been in Angola for like 28 years. He came out. How long? How long's he been out? Like 10 years or so?
3: Uh, Tatum been out right at 10 years. Yeah. yeah.
2: And he he went back to school. Right. And then I think uh, d- I think he's doing social work, but he started a formerly incarcerated pr- people, p- formerly incarcerated people transition you know, just what you're talking about, Amy, they did nothing for these guys mm-hmm. to come out. And so I, you know, I'm having the opportunity to learn an incredible amount and sort of hear these stories of, you know, guys like Isaac, some wrongly convicted, some not, but, and Tatum, you know, it was in 20 years and at some point, right, he was stabbed in the shower, he's paralyzed, but still, you know, they gather and there's all these guys that, A, talk about their feelings, (laughs) you know, like really are trying to digest some of what happened to them, but also like really a support system for each other to guys who um, then you know have started their own businesses. Like the theme the other night was about jobs and authority and conflict and you know how prison set you up for you know not being able to tolerate authority and because of how badly they were abused. But so guys you know had their own businesses and then when the guys come out, they hire them, give them a little experience. You know, I mean it's unbelievable to to sort of hear these guys, right? God, hearing Isaacster, I mean, knowing what they've been through, you know, and actually, you know what I have? I've written this from uh, this was a quote when uh, Amy refers to relational cultural theory. It's a it's the theory that that my organization sort of, um, you know, thinks about uh, Isaac and I don't talk a lot about RCT, but, it you know, that basically says relationships are the most important things and all relationships are embedded in culture, right? And culture impacts relationships and trying to get people out of that, like, oh, you just have to suck it up and stand on your own two feet. But one of the literally Thad Tatum, this guy's running the group, he, he said at the end, quote, we energize each other when we come together. And I mm-hmm. thought, there you go. You know, like it just that's one of the sort of central premises of RCT, you know, is that, yeah, you know, these relationships create energy for people. Right. And, you know, the prison system is exactly
3: the opposite. It's amazing how we come together, and I think about it all the time. We have a good friend that was in prison with us, and it's so sad, a friend of ours, he just died. Mm. uh, And every time someone passed away that was in prison with us, it's like a reunion. Everybody start calling each other. Hundreds of guys that that has been released from Angola, but we are like family, and we keep in touch with one another. It's like Tatum said, the energy, We come together uh, in times like that. Sometimes we won't see each other, but every time someone would pass away out here that was in prison with us, that's where you would see everybody that was in prison with you. Everybody would be there. They would be there uh, for support. Now we start to get together, not just when someone has passed away, and, and just communicate and socialize whenever we can. Yeah, Like what happened with Archie, Archie was so happy it was like every five minutes tears would come out of his eyes when he looked at me
2: so Archie that uh Isaac is referring to is if if you followed Americans got talent if you haven't you you might not know his story, but he um he was in Angola for was it thirty seven years, years wrongly convicted oh lord, and then came out he came out and he he's got this unbelievable voice um Google him after this, go on YouTube and you can find. So he went on to American um, Got talented and was incredibly successful. And now so Isaac you know, knows him because this is part of the Angola prison population. And that's what you were saying is he's you just saw him the other day.
3: And he was he was so excited because he hadn't been around a farmer, incarcerated people that he had spent time with. since he's been home. He felt so comfortable. I mean, he would drop his head, you know, <laughs> tears would come out his eye. He didn't want us to leave. He said, This is the best time I've spent since I've been home. I, I hate for y'all to leave. You know, yeah. he, he was like, when we, we had to leave, we get in the car and Archie was just looking, just looking. He watched us till He couldn't see the car no more. Aww. He want us to go. So I, I but I told Archie I, I would I would come get him because he afraid to drive on it. Interstate, I think. because I said, Arthur you need to come down and, and visit us sometime. He said, "Yeah, I would." I yeah. said, "Even if, even if I have to come get you, that's a good idea." You come.
2: <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Perfect.
3: <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah. But he was just so happy, and, and uh, we was happy to see him. Yeah. And I may go get him this weekend, and he'll come stay here with me because he want to sing for my mother.
2: Oh, wonderful! Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, wow, that's exciting. Yeah. Anyway, I anyway, I can get in on a Zoom call for that song.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's what we'll do.
2: Oh, <laughs> I would love that. But I'm also thinking, Amy, you you said, you know, thank God, uh, Isaac, you had boxing to, to for, as an outlet. Right. But it also was absolutely a survival strategy. As long as you were the best boxer in Angola, nobody was gonna mess with you. You weren't gonna be stabbed in the middle of the night. And that kind of like pressure of every single day, not knowing if you're gonna live through that day, right? And, and come out and still be human.
1: Isaac, um, did, did you enjoy the boxing or was it all survival?
3: The boxing part of it, my dream and hopes, was to become the champion of the world one day. I remember sitting inside the boxing ring. I was nine years old, and my coach and good friend, Percy, in fact, the gym was named after him. And we would sit in the ring, and all of us young kids, and Percy would stand up in the center of the ring, and he would talk to us, and he would say, how many of you kids want to become the champion of the world one day? And I remember being the first one to jump up and raise my (laughs) (laughs) hand. The person would look at me and he said, you know what? I believe you. You're going to become a champion one day. And it plays a role in who I am now. He would tell us, he said, don't drink alcohol. Don't smoke marijuana. Don't smoke cigarettes. Stay away from drugs, period. Don't use drugs if you want to become the champion of the world. You don't want to tell your body down." Right now, as we speak, can't tell you how weed tastes, can't tell you how beer tastes, how wine tastes, wine cooler. Never drunk in my life, in my entire life, and I've never been high off marijuana. Did I deal with drugs? Yes, but I've never used drugs. And I think that it has a lot to do with Percy Bill.
1: <laughs> we know you don't drink because we heard you say wine cooler.
3: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Nobody, I don't know if they've made wine cooler in 20 years, man.
2: (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, I have tasted marijuana and I have (laughs) used wine. (laughs) But it's also rather remarkable to me, even as a psychiatrist, that you didn't start using something to try to cope with the kind of stress, right? I mean, my God, you know, I know I got into big time trouble with alcohol you know, when I went to college after my father had been killed, I, you know, I was just trying to numb out and get away. You know, it was touch and go there for a while because that felt a hell of a lot better than, you know, being present and sober. Mm-hmm.
1: I think what's interesting is that your story is not unique, but some people would assume that it will be the African-American man that that's your same age that would have those the issue with drugs and alcohol.
0: I imagine that I was wilder than you in my late teens and early 20s.
1: Oh, you were wilder wilder than me in high school. What are you talking about?
0: I didn't do anything in high school. We've <laughs> talked about oh, yeah.
1: this. No <laughs> 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 okay, and we both were in marching band. Come on. I mean, we, yeah. we, we, we were... <laughs> We're not really uh, talking, we're marching like, band. We,
2: Enough we said.
1: Were, we both were geeks, so like when yeah. I'm saying, "Oh, you're a wild and crazy," like
2: no. yeah, yeah you were in marching band. Isaac and I were athletes.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> a different breed. That's yeah. so funny, right?
1: Yeah, just just different levels of nerdiness between me and Amy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you uh, know, last week we were talking about you two coming on the podcast this week. And I was describing, you know, Amy, you asking Isaac to meet
2: mm-hmm.
0: and Isaac saying if it would be helpful. Yeah. Um, and I and I said that to Don and we had an interesting moment around it. And I don't know if Don, if you still had that reaction or if you can even remember what it was. I don't remember. Well, you, at first you seemed surprised. Surprised that Isaac had said. That, yeah, that Isaac was so open to it. Mm -hmm. You know, Isaac being willing after all of all of this to risk that connection. Yeah,
1: I think it was that I was really impressed by the fact that Isaac was willing to do it. If it was to help them, Isaac had came to peace with, hey, I didn't do this. But he was so open that he was like, you know, if it's going to help them. And I remember that eight year, that little eight year old I'd love to meet with. I'd love to help them. And I thought that was just really genuine. Your story is beautiful, guys. Both both of you, there's grace in what both of you have done.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I felt it was pretty exceptional, you know, Isaac. I mean, as we, one of the things that you had said, Isaac, that, that I've chuckled with, I can't even remember if it made it into the book, but I chuckle in this sort of appreciative way is once Nancy and I got there, you know, and we had met, I mean, for me, it really was, Isaac felt just familiar. I mean, and, and even though I spend my life talking about relationships, I'm I'm actually quite protected and protective and guarded, <laughs> um, you know probably partly as a result of of the trauma, but, you know, to sort of meet this being, Isaac, who was so, you know, genuinely warm and open and 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 then as the weekend progressed, you know, he and his also equally warm and lovely wife, Denise, are driving us around the ninth, ninth Ward and showing us, you know, kind of places in Katrina that got demolished. And, you know, we got to see the gym. And uh, so we're driving around. And Isaac, when you had shared with me at some point, I don't even know it was, sort of thinking, oh, my God, what if something happens to these guys while they're with me? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't even thought of that. Right. Like, can you imagine if, you know, Nancy and I had gone down there to meet Isaac? He's driving us around and then, you know, God forbid something else happened to us. And the point is the level of risk that it actually took to do this and to do it so graciously. And, and you know, and I just remember Denise kept looking back and being like, yeah, you know, this is so weird. <laughs> Is this really happening, you know, kind of thing. But it so it was both so comfortable and so surreal all at the same time, you know. You know, Isaac. I mean, I think I've said this to you, but you know, the healing that this has brought and the closure that it has brought to me, and you know, as I know to my sister, has just been profound, and not just closure, opening. You know, bigger. Mm, it, it, yeah. it it marks. You know, when I think now of my father's murder. I think you know you talk about neural pathways changing, I think of Isaac. I think of my relationship that this has come out of it, and I, I don't even know how to explain it sometimes. I mean, it's so uh, just so moving.
3: You know, Amy, I felt the healing process, and I thought about you. but when I touched Nancy, yeah you see, I didn't want to let her go. <laughs> it was the moment you know the tears come down, because I thought of her so much being a baby eight years old, and I I think about her all the time. And when the opportunity presented itself, I felt the emotions from back then when she was eight years old at that time in that moment. And it was a healing moment for me.
2: Isaac, that was such a healing moment. I wouldn't even call it healing. It was transformative Uh, for Nancy, for me. I mean, that in that moment did just encapsulate it, right? Where you were so present with our pain even as we had just heard, you know, this just horrific story. You know, we didn't know yet that you had been beaten during the entire. You know, we didn't know any of that. So we're hearing all of this. And then, you know, to, so the juxtaposition, right, of you telling us this uh, inhumane treatment as a 16 year old boy who is innocent, being beaten for a confession, sharing that and then moving into, you know, Denise asking us, you know, what our experience was like. And, you know, Nancy and I are kind of a little hemming and hawing. And and Isaac, you so didn't miss a beat, you know, with Nancy. As she's in, you just jumped right in there, you know, saying, you know, Nancy, I remember you when you were eight and, you know, and Nancy's crying and, you know, and you just hugging her. I mean, it was bottled that stuff. I don't know what it was, but that was you know, you talk about healing, the level of disconnection that happens, right? Certainly when you go to prison. <sighs> like, God, you know, disconnection from friends, relatives, mm-hmm. you know, having people think you were a murderer, you know, the Hyatt Regency killer, even though you weren't, you know, all of that that you lived with. And for me, you know, the trauma, it just shuts you down. It, you just freeze. I mean, you know, th- it was a little melting that moment, you know, I think for for all of us there.
1: I think what's remarkable about that moment that you describe is that, all these things happened to him he wasn't actually responsible for the grief that you and your sister were feeling yet he was more most concerned about that that's i think it's one of them superhero things right in both respects it's that superhero thing where uh superhero villain thing where they all have this moment where bad things happen to them they're just normal people and then bad things happen to them and then something inside of them says, hey, I'm going to make sure that I protect others and that that's never going to happen to me. Or then sometimes other people are like, hey, that happened to me and I'm going to make the rest of the world pay for it. Right. The fact that both of you guys came to a place where you became superheroes <laughs> is remarkable. I, I can't wait till more people hear this story.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. thank
1: you, God.
0: I want to thank you so much for coming on coming into our messy conversation. And I have more that I would love to talk talk about. So maybe, maybe we'll get to reconnect again sometime. This I is so.
3: rich. I want to thank you all for having me and invite me. I loved it. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much, Isaac, for coming on and sharing. Thanks,
2: everyone. All right. I'll
0: thank talk
3: you
2: later,
3: you. Isaac. Bye, Amy. A- Amy. Amy, Amy. <laughs> Amy. Amy, Amy, Amy. Amy, Amy, <laughs> Amy. You got it.
1: This episode of My Racist Friend is a production of the Bloomington Center for Connection, an organization using relational cultural theory to promote social change through connection. This conversation between Dr. Amy Banks, Isaac Knapper, Don Griffin Jr., and Amy McKees, LCSW, took place in separate locations on Thursday, March 11th, 2021, and was edited for this podcast by Kevin McKees. Theme music lovingly sampled from Your Racist Friend by They Might Be Giants. Follow the Bloomington Center for Connection on Facebook and other social media platforms. Hey, how close are you to Hattiesburg, Mississippi?
3: I think Hattiesburg, uh, it may be about maybe three hours. Oh, shoot. Never mind.